Thank you so much. Thank you all for singing, for giving, um, and for being in the house to hear from the Lord this morning. I told you last week that uh, last week's message, I don't know about that, uh, if it was okay or maybe not so good. Um, I think it turned out all right. But uh, I told you um, last week that uh, this week's, this week's the one you, you don't want to miss. Now, I don't like, I shouldn't do that because sometimes I overhype and oversell something and I don't live up to expectations. But then I turn around and name a, a, a message phenomenon and then uh, you see I just can't really, I can't really help myself, right? Um, but I really have look, been looking forward doing this whole series, this whole study um, called Fallen about some of our favorite most famous heroes in the Bible who were just like us. They may have some amazing stories that we remember them for, but they also have some not-so-amazing stories that we try to forget, that they would love for us to forget, yet the Bible preserves for us to remember. And I began to approach this study uh, with the question, why did God include all of these stories that are sometimes embarrassing sometimes uh, dark and sometimes just kind of outright bad um, about people that were so great otherwise and that meant so much to the kingdom. But I think um, they're preserved in the Bible for people just like us to remind us that we have a place in God's family and God can use any of us like he used so many before us. Now, again, the, the picture on the title card there, um, that is a meteor uh, falling through the sky, shooting through the sky. Um, a, a meteor is a, a piece of matter, um, a rock, um, maybe a cluster of dust even, um, that floats through space, uh, probably that broke off of something larger. Um, some pieces of matter that float through space, when they get near a planet, particularly our planet, um, they get caught in Earth's atmosphere and uh, these pieces of rock that plenty you know, chart their course by our planet every day, uh, these small pieces of matter called meteors, they're called meteors because when they enter the atmosphere, um, they're so small in and of themselves. They, they're not asteroids, they're not comets, um, but once these small pieces of matter enter the atmosphere, they start falling to high velocity that they begin to uh, you know, mix with the gases in the atmosphere and they begin to get so hot and they begin to catch fire. The friction causes the surface of these little clusters of matter or dust to burn up. And as these meteors fly through the atmosphere, um, they vaporize at a spectacular rate and in a fashion that leaves the sky lit up uh, with their glory. Uh, now, it's easy to get meteors and uh, asteroids and comets confused. Asteroids, though, are way, 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 way bigger. And if you saw one of them falling through the sky, you probably wouldn't be remembering too much after that. Just ask the dinosaurs. When they hit, they hit with uh, an impact. Um, but uh, comets, on the other hand, they're very small. They're, they're actually frozen rocks that are out in space. They don't usually hit things. They just kind of you know, fly through space and, and, and dodge things. Um, so if you ever see something like this in the sky, uh, that is a meteor, or you've probably heard it called by something more common, a shooting or a falling star. But they're not stars, as we've learned. They're actually rocks. Now, the ancients, when they used to observe the sky, they didn't have anything else to do. Um, they were bored, didn't have TV, or didn't have social media, or didn't have the stuff that we do. They just watched the sky, but they were probably happier for it. Uh, they would watch the sky and watch the stars, and, and when they would see these bright objects entering in the line of sight, they would just be in awe of what was going on, but then they would just disappear. 
Uh, so they thought they were falling stars. They thought they were stars that were burning out and then disappearing. But, uh, and, and as they, see, they saw these streaks of light shoot across the sky, they were fascinated by them. Um, but the, the name that the ancients, particularly the Greeks and the Latins, uh, the, the Romans, the name that they gave these falling stars was meteora, which literally means a phenomena in the heavens. They didn't know what was actually going on up there. They just stood back in awe of what was beyond their reach and beyond their comprehension, wondering at all that was to behold and to discover about the universe. Almost every ancient culture was obsessed with the heavens, with the stars, particularly the night sky, because of the spectacle that was always on display for all to enjoy and all to marvel at. And and, and the Bible, the the Hebrews, the Jews, they were no different. Um, The Bible tells us that one of the Psalms that David wrote, uh, Psalms 19, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So David, if you read that whole psalm, it's all about marveling at what God does above us and the show that he puts on for us if we would just take the time to watch. Of course, all of nature proclaims his handiwork, not just the sky, not just the stars, everything that God has created, but it's something particularly fascinating about the things that we can't really reach and the things that we can't see the other side of that really catches our eye and attention. But what's particularly um, amazing about shooting stars or, or meteors is this concept. And really, when you break it down, what they really are. Meteors are ordinary, broken fragments of a greater celestial body masquerading as stars. Meteors are just pieces of rocks Maybe they're part of another planet or a moon or an asteroid that, that got hit by something or hit something. And as they begin to go through this, this, the deep space, they chip away and they break off. They're just ordinary broken fragments of something greater. But when we see them, they're pretending to be or they're masquerading. They've taken on a greater form as a bright star. When they enter the atmosphere, these ordinary broken rocks take on a speed and presentation that mask what was broken about them, what was ordinary about them in the darkness of space. And if for just a brief moment they are glorious objects putting on a brilliant show for everyone below. Now the ancients didn't know just how phenomenal these shooting stars actually were, did they? These leftover rocks, these wandering lost rocks... They weren't stars at all. They were just pieces of matter. Pieces of matter that take on a fiery presence as they pass through the heavens. Asteroids and other space rocks spend years, maybe centuries, passing through space, colliding and chipping off. But when they get close to the earth, the gravitational pull of the planet pulls these fragments in and gives them a new lease on life. And it's just, it's short-lived. But these fragments, they're already falling This gives them an opportunity to fall in style, to go out with a bang, live a life in front of a captivated audience. Now, maybe you've already begun to make a connection in your mind that I might be uh, foreshadowing. From our beginning, from our beginning, we are fallen. We are spiraling out of control in more ways than one. We have all fallen from the ideal state we were meant to exist in, but The hope of the gospel, the hope of our gospel is that God's grace has a gravitational pull that draws in even the most broken and lost. 
His grace catches us and His presence redeems and repurposes us and lights us with life from the heavens. Yes, we're still fallen at our core, still sinners in our nature, still fragile and just here for a limited time. But God's grace gives us an opportunity to aim towards a destination we were all made for. God's grace takes flesh and clothes it in spirit. He takes what's empty and fills. He takes what's dirty and washes. He takes what is dark and he brightens it, allowing us to live for his glory, for his kingdom, make a difference for good and be forgiven of all that will be judged. We witnessed the earliest example of this in history last week with the story of Noah. Just a few generations removed from Adam, creation had spiraled out of control into violence, into hate, into rejection of God. God was set on scraping everything and starting over, but he made a promise to Adam that he would give him a seed, that he would bring redemption, and his grace would make a way for mankind to be redeemed. So because of this presiding grace that combated and worked against the fallen nature of creation, God drew one man to himself. One no better than the others, but one caught in the gravitational pull of God's grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. The story of Noah reminds us that God can save and spare anyone. He can sustain anyone by his grace. Even though Noah's story ends on a down note, we learned. That's just to further emphasize the brokenness of man and the need we all have for salvation and that God has indeed provided it. Of course, that is all captured perfectly by the Apostle Paul, a scripture that we looked at last week. Paul says in Romans 3, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And... All are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation or atonement by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance or patience, He passed over former sins. God addressed this problem on a much wider and global scale when he sent Jesus to the cross. Now, you see, we're just like meteors. We're no different, really. We're all falling. We're fallen creatures. But even as fallen creatures, we can be made bright. As fleeting as our lives are, they can still count for something. They can still be phenomenal to God. In fact, because core to God's method and passion, he delights in using us despite our condition because it paints that much more a glorious image. It tells that much more of a redemption story. This has been God's mode of operation since the beginning. God delights in using broken vessels, fallen creatures, to tell a greater story. Paul also wrote this passage from Corinthians that tells us that very truth. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are or think they are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
So that it is written, let the one who boasts or the one who glories, let him glory in the Lord. This is the power behind the stories of all the heroes of our faith. We often build them up to be great in and of themselves, but they were just like us. Only saved and spared by God, appointed and used by God. But their hope can be our hope. Our stories don't have to end any different than theirs did. God's grace can catch us and we can catch fire for him. All the same. Though we are fallen, God sees phenomenal potential. Though our sin persists, God's grace is more persistent. Our sin does abound, but God's grace abounds much more. And that is our hope today. Now, today's story is an even greater example of this fact. I think even greater than Noah's. Today's story punctuates what Corinthians tells us, the purpose of glorifying God more than anything. And, and today, we're going to look at a story that it's a few generations removed from Noah to the story of Abraham. But when we first meet him, he is called Abram. And we don't even meet him until he's way past the point in life when we'd expect to meet someone who is going to be remembered as a great person or accomplish something great. He is well into his 70s by the time that we meet him, but I think we've already figured out that's the point, isn't it? That God took someone that no one expected anything great from and used them for something glorious. When we're first introduced to Abram, he's living in the land of Ur when, where they worship many gods. Actually, you might think it's sort of odd that in chapter 9 of Genesis, Noah and his family are worshiping one God, the only people alive after the flood, sent by that one God. And you get to chapter 11 and no one knows or worships that same God. It's just a few hundred years later. What happened? In just a few generations, long forgotten and gone was the very short-lived days of Noah as the world had rebelled against God once more and were dispersed in fear that they might would become united in rebellion. Worse than before. They united in rejection of God in favor of men who exalted themselves in His place. Over time, the people began to desperately try to chase after some semblance of religion, realizing they'd made a mistake trying to find purpose and reason for this life. Religion began popping up everywhere, all with different theories and different ideas. So now that people are scattered all over the earth, all worshiping their own gods, some called their gods Zeus, some called him Jupiter, some called him um, Marduk, some called him um, Isis, some, all these other names that you see in different religions of, around the world, they all had their own name for God or their gods, but they did not know the one true God. Believing that theirs was the greatest and theirs would lead them in the right direction, but they all were really wondering which one's going to win, which nation is going to rise up and be greater, and which nation's God is going to rise up and be the greatest. Out of this, this, these, these different tribes and nations, religion developed out of this wonder, and, and the priests and religions of the day began to connect, uh, begin to connect try to connect human circumstances to divine sovereignty. So as each nation developed and each religion began to develop, they all began to point to their circumstances as expressing God or their God's sovereignty. As in what we're going through reflects or how good we've got it or how bad we've got it reflects how in control or out of control our God is. They begin to use nature and signs to see whose God was greater and who was safer under theirs 
or another. So God looks down at this mess that has developed. He looks down at this mess and he observes all the nations scrambling for power over another, all the people at the mercy of this shoestring religions that each nation was, was propping up. And he comes up with the most wild idea. I'll start my own nation through one person. I'll reveal myself to that person as the one true God. And through that nation, I'm going to show the whole world that I'm the only God after all. Now that sounds crazy. Why would God, why would God go about it this way? Why wouldn't he do it in a more, you know, you know, I'm in charge. You know, y'all are all you know, wrong. Look at me. Why would he go about it this way? Why would he start as a person and then build a nation? Because God wanted the world to be convinced and have undeniable proof. He was willing to walk toward the world and talk to them on their level so that they would have proof of who the one true God was. Now that story begins in Genesis 12. If you've opened your Bibles there, Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. There's no backstory to this. There's no context. What we believe is that Abram was just living out his days in Ur in a crowded city full of millions of people all worshiping the moon god and all the other gods of the land. And one day, Abram hears a voice. And that voice belongs to the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the backstory for this new idea, this brand new idea that God has. He picks one man. Why does he pick this one man? We don't know. Abram, I need to cut you off from your family tree. I'm starting over. We're going to have a new family that's going to come from you. And from you, it's going to come a nation. And from that one nation, it's going to come salvation. Now, from Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi, this is the story. How God goes from one person to one nation. One person to one family to one nation. And then brings a one and only Savior from that nation for the whole world. Along the way, the story spotlights some people who, apart from God's intervention, would have been forgotten in the sands of their time. But again and again, we read of ordinary people catching lightning in a bottle and accomplishing extraordinary things. So the story goes that God calls Abram out of nowhere and gives him this whole rundown. And Abram has nothing else to do, nothing better to do. He's not really busy doing anything, it seems. So he says, why not? He begins to wander west toward the Mediterranean Sea. He doesn't know where he's going. He's never been there before. He doesn't seem to have a map. God just tells him to start walking. He wanders and he arrives in a land with a familiar name. See if you can pick up on that name. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to the go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, which would be his dwelling place. And the Canaanites were there in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed, going on still toward the south. So Abraham goes to Canaan's land. Now, you remember Canaan. He was the grandson of Noah. Now, remember, when Ham mocked his father's nakedness and drunkenness, Noah prophesied that one of Ham's sons would be made an example of for their own sin in the age to come and would be overran by another nation. Now, Canaan and family, we know, would be a perennial enemy of Abraham's people, but eventually Abraham's descendants would possess their land And nobody remembers Canaan, but everyone remembers Abraham. As a statement to the whole world that there is hope and there is redemption. That nakedness and drunkenness that shamed Noah and that brought sorrow to his family. Nakedness and drunkenness, the shame and sorrow of sin will not rule this world forever. God was preparing a solution. And we read the beginning of that plan. But what's remarkable, the man he started with was not perfect at all. He had his own shame and his own sorrow, a lot of it. Abraham would not be the solution, no, not at all. He was very much part of the problem. It's phenomenal that the solution would come through someone as imperfect as him. Maybe you're wondering, am I overstating that? How imperfect was Abraham? I mean, God wouldn't... God wouldn't call someone that was as messed up as someone before or messed up compared to everyone else, would he? Well, once again, right after this extraordinary promise of salvation and blessing, there's a story that clues us in just how average, maybe how below average of a man that Abram really was. We're introduced to Abram. He says yes, begins to worship God, and then it's like the next day he forgets all about it. There's a famine in the land God brought him to. But Abram doesn't go to God for help. He doesn't pray. He doesn't worship. He just says, oh, well, I guess this isn't going to work out. He packs up his camp and leaves. We even see the beginning of it here in verse 9. God says, this is your land. Well, Abraham says, I guess I'm going to go somewhere else for a while because I don't really want to stay in one place. Now, it's tempting to rub it in, but Abram literally had known God for about a minute. Um, He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a church. He didn't literally have anything that we have. He just met him and really didn't meet him. He just heard him. But then again, his next step proves he clearly hadn't been seeking God on his own goodness because he surely doesn't seek or rely on him when he obviously should have. And almost, it's almost like this next episode was arranged by God just so we could see who Abraham really was and so that we all might see who God really is and what God is really like. Look at verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land, and Egypt was the world power at the time. came to pass, when he, when he was close to entering Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. That's really a good way to compliment someone. Being, you know, when you try to compliment somebody, but you say it in, a mo- in the most complicated way possible, that's what I do. Um, you, he could have just said, you're pretty. You are of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. And you would think Abraham would think, you know what, honey, as long as you're safe, that's all that matters. But he says, I don't want them to take me. They can have you. 
but I don't want him to kill me. I mean, literally, verse 13, please say that you are my sister. Now, I don't think this is really, I don't think women respond well to this. I don't know. Sarah seems very humble about this whole thing. But um, please say that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. He says, honey, I'm, I'm, you know, just, I know I've just found some religion, and it's made me a better person. I don't want to die. So I'd rather them take you, and Lord knows what they're going to do with you, but hey, at least they won't hurt me. So please, baby, sweetheart, would you do this for me? When the New Testament says submit to one another, this is not what it means. But she goes along with it. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. Now we have to understand the world that, was, that they lived in, it was, they were very, women were treated like commodities. So the, the, the reality that the Egyptians would do, try to do this or take her was not surprising. Um, the Egyptians saw, sees her. They see that she's beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake because, hey, if you were her, hus- her husband, I'd kill you. But since you're her brother, well, thank God for bringing her to me. We're going to make you a guest of honor. And Abram's thinking, this is really great. I don't know when I'm going to see my wife again, but you know what? At least I'm alive. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. I mean, Abram's just thinking, man, he sees the dollar signs going up. He didn't even expect this. He just didn't want to die. And now he's getting rich. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues and afflictions because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, they didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, plagues began to hit the land, whether it was pestilence, disease, we don't know. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Now, how did he find out? I guess God told him. What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might not have taken, I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commended his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had and all the stuff they gave him. That is a wild story, isn't it? God's chosen man, holy and beloved and highly favored. What a piece of work. Now again, hindsight's 2020. I mean, you know, I don't think we would, you know, I don't know what we would have done back then, but clearly Abram didn't care. The short of it is Abram's afraid. You would have been too. I would have been too. Doesn't even think about trusting God as an option. Never has you know, seeing that never has been here before and takes things into his own hands. But in this situation, God intervenes and shows Abram that he can be trusted and is totally involved in every decision and circumstance he'll ever find himself in, even the total disasters you bring upon yourself. Isn't that awesome? Do we really, don't we underestimate just how good God is to us? Now, I'm not saying go and do likewise and see what God does for you. But I am saying, don't you see how good God is to all of us, even when we just blatantly and ignorantly do something that was so wrong? You see what's going on here? God chose Abraham knowing he was a raw, unfinished sinner, broken and fragmented from generations of fallen men, and God was okay with that. 
He knew what he was getting himself into. And when Abram messed up, God didn't throw his hands up. He was patient and saw this as a chance to teach Abram and change Abram. Isn't that amazing to know that God doesn't just throw in the towel? A God who loves us, a God who doesn't look for reasons to judge us, but ways to teach us because He's a good Father. A God who is not surprised by our sin, but looks for ways to redeem even our most embarrassing moments for His glory and for our good. And in this story, God does not punish Abram for his lies, his fear, his unbecoming manner as a husband. He afflicts Pharaoh because of his promise to Abram. I mean, do you hear that? Even though Abram was more at fault, God uses this opportunity to make his favor known to Abram, the power of his blessing. God doesn't punish Abram where he should have. He afflicts Pharaoh, who didn't even know what was going on. Abram leaves Egypt a greatly blessed man. And if you read the first few verses of chapter 13, it says, Abram was very rich because Egypt made him very rich. The ancient leaders would pay people off to win the favor of their God. See, we already see this blessing and curse thing working out from early in Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I'll bless, and those who curse you, I'll curse. God cursed Pharaoh because he was afflicting Abram, even though Pharaoh didn't know what he was doing. That's how much God's hand was on Abram. The superpower of Egypt is left speechless at the demonstrated superiority of Abram's God. So Pharaoh blesses him in order to try to win over the blessing of his God, which is what the whole promise was all about to begin with, to tell the whole world about God. It's funny how quickly it worked, isn't it? You see, God's hand of favor upon Abram was greater than the heart of sin within Abram. Sin would not stop God from redeeming his life. And let me rephrase that. God's hand of favor upon you is greater than the sin in the heart of us all. Sin will not stop God from redeeming your life for something greater. Now, this isn't to condone Abram's sin. It's just to show you and me that in spite of our blunders, in spite of our mistakes, in spite of the messes that we make, God is greater and doesn't suddenly take His hand off us when we prove undeserving. Remember, we were undeserving to begin with. Before He ever put His hand on us, we were already undeserving. He put His hand on us knowing what we were and who we were and what we would do. And that's a choice he made. Because he's far better than me and you. That's for sure. So do not fear that God might reject, but do fear that we might underestimate who God is and what he can do with sinners like us. If we just trust him. You see, our sin is real. Our undeserving of God's favor is obvious and apparent, but it's important to note, God never leverages guilt. He always emphasizes His grace, especially when it appears the most out of place. Never once do we see God come to Abram and say, Abram, why did you do the wrong thing? He always just blesses him more. The enemy wants us to feel unloved and useless, but God stresses the opposite because it's that kindness that spurs us to live the newfound life that God can give us. We find in Abram's story, he is constantly feeling undone and overwhelmed and afraid. 
In the next story, he finds himself trying to save Lot's life. He gets at odds with the neighboring tribes. And despite that he proved able to stand on his own, not to mention all the riches and people that he's acquired to his team, he begins to be afraid that his fledgling family might not ever get off the ground because of all the people trying to get him and hurt him. Abram begins to worry because even though he's very rich and has a great household, he still does not have a child. It's, it's funny how that works. Even though God has proven to be by Abram's side, Abram, Abram's fears highlight the one aspect of God's promise that seemed unfulfilled. Isn't that how our nature works? God can do a thousand things for us and our fear focuses on the one thing he's yet to do or it seems like he hasn't done. And that's okay. God can handle that kind of pressure. But the enemy loves to get us all out of sorts over one thing that isn't going our way despite the hundred things that are. And it's in this moment of fear and doubt that God wants Abram to have all the confidence in the world about his commitment. It's in Abram's moment of fear that God stresses his favor. Flip over to chapter 15 and we'll close with this story. Scripture says at verse 1, after these things, it's after all the battles and all the uh, Abraham getting scared. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, because he was afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, which was a servant. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside, and he said, Look now toward the heavens, and count the stars if you are able to count them. So shall your descendants and offspring be. I love verse 5, and if you couldn't tell, I talk about space a lot. As we've talked today, the ancients were fascinated with the heavens. They believed that somewhere up there, somewhere out there, there was a God. They believed that the spectacle and the phenomena of the heavens might just communicate his splendor in his essence. They constantly connected the dots and looked for signs and wonders, patterns and repetitions. They found spoons, big and little. They found bears and bulls and birds and scorpions and goats, but they never found God. Not that he couldn't be found, but he's way, 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 way too personal to only be found through a game of connect the dots. Knowing him is way better than that. Abraham's generation looked up beholding the phenomena of heaven, but Abram was the first to hear from heaven. Not only that, he was the first to feel the gravitational pull and enter into a relationship with the God of heaven. So when God says, Abram, I just want you to trust me. Count the stars. That's how many descendants are going to come from Abraham. So verse 6 is so crucial. Abraham believed in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Same idea as John 3, 16. Believed in, trusted in. He trusted in the Lord, and God accounted it as an accounting word. He credited to him as righteousness. That when Abram trusted God's promise, God made him righteous, as in secure on earth, but more importantly, in the heavens. 
Abram, by faith alone, was made righteous before God. As surely as he could count the stars, he could count on God. As bright as the stars were, Abram would be used by God. Brighter than any star, he would be Abram uh, would be Abram as he walked by faith and began making known to a hungry world the nature and name of the one true God. Now in this next section that we won't read, God, um, it's so important what happens next that God communicates his heart and his nature so clearly. In this next section, God cuts a covenant with Abram, literally cuts a covenant. Now in the ancient world, they had a custom that when two parties made an agreement, made a covenant, they would cut a covenant, cut a deal, we use that phrase still. They would take animals and sacrifice these animals and they would lay the two halves of the animals across a, a, a pathway. And then both parties would walk between the two halves as if to say, be it unto me as these animals if I don't keep my half of the deal. So they cut the animals in half because there was two halves to the agreement, this person and that person, and you would walk between those two halves to say, hey, if I don't keep my part, you can do to me what we just did to these animals. As in, it's on my life if I don't keep it. But if you read the story, from, uh, as, as God tells Abram this promise, God puts Abraham to sleep. He makes a promise about his future family, stressing, I will do this. And in verse 17, when the sun goes down, it was dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and burning torch that passed between those pieces. But we don't read that Abram passed between those pieces. God's presence passed between the two halves. But Abram does not. He was unable to. He was sleeping. But in our humanity, we're unable to keep our part of the deal. But that's okay. Verse 18 makes it very clear. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. I will give this land to you. He made a promise to Abram that he would bring descendants through his name. And through those descendants, he would bring a savior to the world. It was a one-sided covenant, an unconditional covenant. God assumed responsibility for his promise of grace and Abram's problem of sin which is why it's important to emphasize that God imputed a righteous standing to Abram. God gave him a right standing. He didn't earn it. To further stress this, if you read the next chapter, the next chapter proves that Abram could never have earned it. What happens next is another example of God's favor being way too good for any of us, especially a sinner like Abram. Once again, he's tempted to take matters into his own hands when God is not moving fast enough, and he makes a bigger mess because of it. Even though God just told him, I've got this, don't worry, look at the stars, count them, you can count on me. In the next chapter of Abram's life, after more years of going childless, 11 more years to be exact, at 86 years old, he and his wife are worried. They start considering other options. They start thinking that they're not going to be able to have a child, and Sarah feels responsible. So, she suggests to Abram that one of her servant girls might would be, a surrogate might would be able to bring a child into the family. So long story short, Abram conceived a child with Hagar, but Sarah is not happy about it. She's probably still mad about the Egypt thing. She's not happy. Sarah is demoralized and becomes jealous of Hagar, as you would expect. And eventually Hagar flees from the with the baby because of being treated so harshly. Now with all this guilt and grief, after another 10 years, Abraham is 99 years old. He and Sarah are still childless, and Abram feels as if he's surely crossed some line with God. 
Yet God returns to Abram to renew his promise. And in chapter 17, God shows back up to Abram. Abram is so ashamed. He falls on his face before God. He feels guilty. He feels unworthy. But God reminds him once again, I will make this promise. I will keep my promise. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a child. I will, I will, I will, and you're still my guy. It's all on me, and you are still my guy. Nothing is going to stop me and nothing's going to replace you. After all of the things Abram did to disqualify himself, God reiterates, you are my chosen man. God saw the grief and the guilt of Abram's heart. He was moved to restore him and remind him. You see, God's always responded to sin in his children like this, brokenhearted like any good parent wanting to help make things better. So pay attention how often when we are at our lowest, at our least deserving, how God sends some kind of word, gift, a reminder of his goodness. He's trying to lift up and restore us. So God comes to Abram and says, Abram, you need another fresh start. We're going to call you Abraham from now on. I know you're 100 years old, and that's not a way to make somebody famous, but hey, you need a brand new start again. Your name is Abraham. Your name, don't worry, Abraham. I know it. nobody's going to be able to contact you anymore because your name's changed. You've already moved three or four places, but don't worry, Abraham. Mark it down. Everyone in the world's going to know who you are, and even 4,000 years from now, everybody's going to know who Abraham is. He's going to be a star like no one else. God promises to take care of Hagar and Ishmael, but reaffirms that Abraham and Sarah would have a child in a little over a year. Both of them laugh at the idea. They, I think they were more laughing at the fact that God would turn their mess into something good. Laughing at the idea that they, they somehow were still redeemable. Maybe you laugh at that same proposition. Maybe the enemy has beaten you down and you doubt your value and your potential. But I'll leave you with one of the questions that God asked Abraham and Sarah when they doubted. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And again, I don't think they were really doubting God's ability to give someone what they wanted. I think they were doubting that they were still redeemable. You read that story, Abraham breaks his back to try to prepare a meal for God and make this big festival because he feels so unworthy. But God tells Abraham, your life is not too complicated. You are not too break, broken for me to redeem and repurpose you. My gravitational pull can pull even the greatest of messes or the most insignificant piece of matter as the devil makes us feel like and set it on fire for a greater purpose, for a greater identity. All throughout Abraham's story, we see the importance of names and their meanings. We see God go by many different names to express his ability and his attributes. And we see God reveal himself to Abraham as God Almighty, the God who sees, the God who provides. The God who provides a Savior for you and for me, Jesus, to be a sacrifice for our sins, a shepherd for our souls, a Savior for our lives, his Spirit sent to turn us all into stars in the kingdom of God. But I know there's part of us that sometimes does not feel like this is possible because we've got some stories in our lives that are just as bad or worse than Abraham's, don't we? I want us to stay together because I think this is what God wants us to get from this story. 
I want us to say together that my life is not too messy, too complicated or messy. I am not too broken for God to redeem. Nothing is too hard for God, even your complicated, your messy, and your broken life. Would you say that with me? My life is not too complicated or messy. I am not too broken for God to redeem. Yes, we are fallen stars, but we are falling in his direction. Speaking of which, you know, sometimes little pieces of matter of the meteor survives and actually lands on the earth. We call these meteorites. But the tiny pieces don't tell the story, the full story of what they were. The light they exhibited, they're just earthly reminders of what was accomplished above. Abraham's earthly reminder is this, is this little nation called Israel, a savior called Jesus, and a movement called the church. And still that's just birdseed compared to what his life meant to God. And through all of that, he was fallen, often foolish, yet to God he was a star. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God's ability to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things remarkable? Just because you failed, don't give up. God's flame and fire never burns out. And just when we think we're too far gone, God shows up to prove us wrong again, to demonstrate his power to redeem. Now, it's funny that this message fell on this week. Tonight is the beginning of an annual meteor shower called Leonides. From November 15th to November 20th, Every night, if the sky is clear, you will be able to look toward the east, just east of the Big Dipper, and you will find what the ancient Greeks called Leo, which is a star constellation that looks to them like a lion. And if you look there and the sky is clear enough, you will be able to see a meteor shower every night of these fallen stars, these shooting stars. And you'll remember, before they hit the atmosphere, they were just pieces of matter. But when they got in the presence of the heavens, they were set on fire. So when you feel like giving up, just go out one night. Behold the eastern sky. Behold the lion. And remember his power to turn fallen flesh into phenomenal stars. That includes you. That includes all of us. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these reminders that you give us that we don't deserve, but we didn't deserve anything, and we don't deserve anything. But God, you're too good. And Lord, I'm not able to present just how good you are I don't do justice, your grace and your glory. But you give us a window into the heavens and you let us see just who you really are. God, it's embarrassing to think of someone that would do what Abraham did until we realize we've done worse. We've done much worse because we had the Bible and the church and all the excuses, all the reasons to not do it. Yet you haven't turned away from us. 
You haven't forsaken us. We are not too complicated or too broken for you to redeem. You call every one of us this day to look toward that eastern sky and see that lion who came to earth as a lamb to die for our sin and to raise us up as brand new stars in the kingdom of God. God, thank you for this promise. Lord, somebody needs to, needed to hear this today. I pray you would restore them, you would encourage them, you would equip them. Lord, maybe somebody needs to come in humiliation of their sin and shame and they need to give it to you and let you raise them up brand new. Whatever the need is today, God, you're able to handle it and you invite all of us to lean on your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.